Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Today is kind of a follow-up to last episode. I'm vegan, so maybe it's not surprising that most of my guests have been neutral on the question of eating animals or have made arguments in favor of vegan or vegetarian diets on any number of grounds, from environmental to purely moral arguments. I wanted to have some friendly conversations with people with a different point of view last episode and this one. Today, we're talking to Tovar Saruli. Tovar was a vegan for years, but as you'll hear, he eventually started eating some animal products and now sometimes fishes and hunts for food. You'll have to listen to hear how he changed his mind, but I think becoming vegan and moving away from it were actually closer positions to each other than either were to what he did before, which was eating what he grew up eating without giving it much thought. Also, I have a quick announcement. I'll be starting a YouTube channel soon with videos about food, primarily made by students in my philosophy of food classes. Stay tuned for more information when that launches, or follow the podcast on Twitter at FoodThoughtPod for updates. So let me read Tovar's biography. Tovar Saruli is a vegan-turned-hunter and author of the book The Mindful Carnivore, A Vegetarian's Hunt for Sustenance. He has worked as a freelance writer, consultant, and public speaker, and holds a PhD in communication from UMass Amherst. He has also worked as a carpenter and forest logger. Tovar is committed to building bridges and understanding across ideological and cultural differences, especially as they relate to food and the larger-than-human natural world. He lives in Vermont. And now, here's my conversation with Tovar Saruli. Where I'm talking to you from. Yeah, um, I live in north-central Vermont. We have a, a small house that's um, <clears throat> tucked several hundred yards uh, back into the woods off a, off a dirt road in, in fairly rural Vermont. And uh, our, um, my, my current office setup is, a, is a, a little corner of our walkout basement. So I have some light um, and uh, <clears throat> looking out onto the sort of the back back corner of our of our yard and it's a it's a beautiful sunny crisp frosty morning here that's nice i, I miss those <laughs> right yeah down. you don't see much of those in texas do you <laughs> no especially down where i am in south texas right on the border mm. with mexico um mm-hmm. you know we live in this weird little tropical kind of uh microclimate within texas so it's hot all the time but also you know papayas grow out in the back alley because somebody dropped one and so a tree just springs up there so it's uh you know it's it's it was a nice change moving down here from michigan uh especially because we moved down here right after the winter where we had no power for eight days with snow outside our door but uh you know i do i, I miss the weather changing like that. <laughs> i remember that i remember that being nice yeah certainly it helps me know that thanksgiving or christmas is coming right rather than my body sort of telling me that no it must still be summer and so i don't you know i don't really get in the mood or do the shopping in time um, right. I really enjoyed your book, by the way, just to start uh, by saying that I thought it was uh, it does a really good job of combining both expressive prose that people might want to read, which is a thing as an academic that I don't get to encounter very often. No, uh, not a lot. Not a lot. Not, not, no, not a lot of that it, in academia. 
I know. It's really bad. They took uh, – academia is this weird job where they took people who love to read more than anyone else and put us in a situation where we are forced to only read for work. And so we don't get to enjoy it as much as we uh, – And often things do. that are painful to, to yeah. wade through. <laughs> it's really it's, – it's some kind of hellish – it's some kind of hellish trick that we all get played on. We think like, oh, I'll get to read all the time. It's like, yes, you will. But <laughs> oh, yes, you will. <laughs> you'll be, see what it is. Be so careful what you ask for. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I really enjoyed the prose style and also your weaving of your own personal story into looking at these kind of broader questions of what we eat or what we're going to do, um, you know, in regards to food systems. So maybe I can uh, start by asking you to talk me through that a little bit. Um, you yourself became vegetarian and then eventually vegan, um, but you weren't when you were a kid. So can you kind of talk about that sort of that part of your journey first? Sure. Um, yeah, I grew up um, quite omnivorous and, you know, knew new vegetarians as I was growing up, um, as a kid, but my, my parents weren't, and it wasn't something that I, I really thought about, uh, where, where food came from. My, my folks did some gardening. I did some fishing, um, but eating other than essentially what was, whatever was on my plate and never really occurred to me, um, as a, as a kid. And it wasn't until, um, sort of my late teens that I started to be more keyed into issues related to food ethics and animal welfare and the like. And, and then, and my girlfriend, um, late in high school, she and her family were vegetarian and I enjoyed the food. Um, and it just was sort of expanded my, my sense of, of the possibilities in terms of dietary choices. My, decision point to become uh, vegan vegetarian um, really came out of I think it's probably a little bit of hubris to call it like you know mindfulness practice but um, <laughs> but you know I I was 20 and I was asking the kinds of questions that a lot of us ask at that age you know who am I what do I want my life to be you know, questions of meaning and, and such. Um, and I had, I had actually just done a, a meditation retreat, uh, which was the first one I'd ever done for uh, a few days. And I went fishing and caught uh, a trout and, and killed it to, to put in the pan. And in that, in that moment of, of killing the, uh, the fish, it just struck me that, you know, I didn't, I didn't need to do that. You know, I didn't, didn't need to take that particular life. Uh, I could have eaten something else. I could have, you know, had uh, rice and veggies or whatever. Um, and, and I didn't need to take that particular life. So that for me was a real, was a turning point moment where I decided I'm going to, I'm going to change my diet. I'm, I'm going to go vegetarian. And, and pretty quickly um, I went to, to veganism uh, thereafter and so the initial impetus was definitely compassion um, and, and concern for, for animal welfare and not wanting to cause suffering or death to, to other beings, to other sentient beings. Uh, the broader suite of reasons that one might follow a vegetarian diet for me um, followed from that, you know, getting more exposed to ideas around vegetarianism 
So environmental concerns, um, health concern, et cetera. You know, I sort of adopted that entire uh, suite of ideas and reasons to sort of bolster the decision that for me was initially uh, inspired by that, that feeling and thought about not killing. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, it's a little depressing to say as a philosopher, but uh, I think it's true that people usually have one initial reason for doing something or sometimes not even a reason, one initial intuitive response or (laughs) some kind of reaction to doing something. And then once they've made a decision, then they cast about for lots of reasons why the decision that they're making is the right decision. Exactly, exactly, right? I mean, we like to think of it the other way around. I mean, a few years back, a good friend of mine um, recommended that I start reading some of Jonathan Haidt's work, starting with The Righteous Mind. And, you know, I was really taken by a lot of his uh, his metaphors and arguments and, the you know, the older metaphor that he adopts there of, you know, the elephant and the rider. You know, the, the elephant's going to go somewhere and the rider is just justifying it. Our, our rational mind is, is, is making up, <laughs> coming up with good explanations for what we're doing as fast right. as we do it. <laughs> Yeah, so fast, we don't cool. realize that it was not actually a decision made by the writer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's a, a Stoic philosopher in ancient Greek philosophy who talked about that if stones had minds, they would talk about how they were making considered judgments that they are deciding now to fall to the ground when dropped. Okay, so after that initial sort of reaction, then you were a uh, vegetarian and then vegan for, I mean, several years, right? Oh yeah, close to a decade. Yeah, pretty well, essentially a decade. So you started moving away from it, um, and in the book you talk about um, both sort of a combination of health reasons and uh, also just uh, sort of a, maybe a growing uh, thought about the ambiguity of harmless uh, vegetarian and vegan eating, like how mm-hmm. harmless it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt like in the book itself, I mean, you do a great job talking about like the growing doubts and then talking to a doctor and thinking about some health concerns and those sorts of things. But the Mm -hmm. actual moment of uh, switching to being non-vegetarian and non-vegan, you know, I didn't get as good of a sense of that. So like, what was Mm. that decision like or that conversation? Because you're also living with a partner at the time. Yeah. um, My my wife, Catherine, um, we've been together for um, 26 years at this point. Um, and so she's been with me on that entire journey. She was vegetarian when we, when we, uh, got together. Um, and so that's an interesting question. The, the doubts were, as you say, about the ambiguities, the, the impacts of agriculture on wildlife and habitat and, you know, the, the constant culling of wildlife, including deer and woodchucks, even at the, the most local low impact organic farm, you know, um, let alone industrial scale agriculture, uh, lots of doubts and, and questions and increasing gray areas in my thinking, uh, that complicated the black and white notions I had about, you know, plant food, good animal food, bad, you know, (laughs) kind of devolved to that level of simplicity in my thinking. Um, and it, it got considerably more complicated as I, as I looked into some of those things. Um, and then there were the, the nutrition and and dietary concerns that then layered on to that, uh, after I was already sort of open to the possibility of, of some ambiguity and complexity to those questions. Um, the actual moments of 
starting to eat animal foods and starting with, you know, yogurt, like, you know, a, a bowl of yogurt or even a bite of yogurt after years of veganism where I might yeah. have had an occasional, you know, cup of cocoa with a little cream in it or something like that. But I, I was not eating any animal foods at all. Eating a bowl of yogurt starts to feel kind of radical. Sure. <laughs> it's kind of funny to say. Uh, but it it felt strange. My body actually responded very well. I did not have any sort of re-entry shock uh, with my digestion system. I was going to ask because yeah. often our internal gut flora and fauna becomes vegan. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know. exactly, right? Um, so, I mean, and it was gradual, I will say. It, was, it wasn't like just boom, all of a sudden I was eating, you know, lots of, of animal foods of all kinds. It was, it was a bowl of yogurt and then it was, you know, some, some local eggs and, you know, then a bit of wild fish and some local poultry. You know, it was, it was bit by bit. Um, each, each step was weird, (laughs) uh, that, and not, not physically, like say it wasn't physically weird, but, but psychologically it was a very odd sensation each time, um, to, to eat that food that I'd been away from for so long and to sort of, to be ingesting it, you know, as a, as a food, but also sort of all of the, I don't know, all of the questions and even taboos that I essentially lived by for many years. It was, yeah. it was odd. It was odd. Yeah. I, I mean, at least for me, you know, uh, when I became vegan, um, the common question I'd get from family members is, oh, aren't you sad that you can't eat this thing that I'm eating in front of you? Mm-hmm. Like if you're at a family barbecue or something. Mm-hmm. And the true answer is no, mm-hmm. but it's because uh, and, and I think that's really the difference between people who maintain a vegan diet and people who after like a few months mm-hmm. of tr- giving it a try back back away mm-hmm. uh, is that people for who do it for a few months, the whole time that they're being vegan are wishing they could eat something else, but choosing right, they're not thinking to. about bacon. They're thinking about bacon the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And that's just not a sustainable. That's not no. how our brains work. We don't have that kind of willpower. No. Uh, but for, for me, it switched into not food, like, you know, like a taboo category in the same way that I, if I was hanging out with my friends and they were eating crickets, I, you know, that wouldn't bother me any particularly, but I also wouldn't be sad that I wasn't having the cricket because it's mm-hmm. not in my repertoire as food. You right. know, my brain doesn't process it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of category shift. Um, yeah. I mean, we talk about it, you know, if you're on vacation, you go down to Colombia and you want to have crickets because people are eating them there. Um, that it's, it's a weird feeling to try to move past that food, not food distinction that we all keep in our mind over and above, you know, the edible or poisonous kind of distinction. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and when you layer on to that, um, you know, with, with, cr- with crickets or, you know, you know, I'm looking out, I'm looking out the window here and there's, you know, the leaves are down on the ground and I look at, you know, maple leaves on the ground. Like I don't think of maple leaves as food, right? Mm -hmm. But there's, but there's no moral connotation to it. It's just not food. Um, But when it's veganism and vegetarianism, and there's also a moral connotation to it, um, it, it makes it, it makes it more complex. Yeah. When you were first trying that yogurt or any of the other then steps mm-hmm. you took forward, and we'll talk about you know more of your journey in a minute, mm-hmm. um, did you do that? Like, was that first step like, okay, now I'm going to stop being vegan. Let's start with yogurt. Or was it more of a tentative kind of, 
um, you know, let's try this and see what happens. Like, you know, what was the, the sort of narrative going on as you did that? Um, that's a, that's a interesting question. I'm not hundred percent sure. I, I don't think that there was a complete commitment to, um, a new path at that point. I think it was more experimental. Um, but I wasn't sort of tethered to the old path by the same narratives and ideas that I had been. So there was a loosening of, uh, of a sense of flexibility and, and, and possibility there. Uh, but I think, yeah, I, I didn't know how my body was going to respond. Would I, would it improve my health? Would I not feel like I could digest this food? You know, um, would I be psychologically uncomfortable with it in some unexpected way? So I think it was probably an experimental space, at least at first. Yeah. So before we move forward on, on your story, uh, maybe just for the listeners, let's talk about um, some of that, you know, kind of dichotomy you're talking about, about that simplistic thinking. Um, <laughs> you know, I've said before in this podcast, when I was interviewing some other people that I find I have a lot more in common with anyone who thinks that eating is a kind of fraught practice <laughs> with a lot to think about. Whatever conclusions they've ended up reaching so far tentatively as they think about it, than anyone who thinks it's a really easy solved problem, even if <laughs> they happen to have the exact same diet that I do or, you know, the exact same <laughs> practices that I do. Um, so let's, let's, let's look at some of those kind of simplistic ways of thinking. Uh, first of all, I think probably what most people would think is um, it doesn't really matter what you eat, like who cares, uh, except for, you know, what my doctor literally tells me. And even then we don't usually listen, but uh, that other than that, like who cares, right? Uh, you know, they don't, it, there's, there isn't a lot of kind of mindfulness. Like you talked a lot about Carol Adams in your book. And I think her sort of analysis of that is very good that, um, you know, when pigs become pork, I mean, English is great with this because it gives us different words for these things. When cows become beef, we stop thinking about the animal altogether um, or about the suffering of field workers that helped us with agriculture or mice that get hurt, you know, in the harvesting of grain that is just kind of not worth thinking about. So, Mm-hmm. What, what do you think about that kind of perspective uh, that I think is probably the dominant one in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I have mixed feelings about it, to be honest with you. On the one hand, I feel like the ability to, the, the privilege to sit back and contemplate these things and worry about what it is that you're eating, you know, and, and, make a lot of choices about it mm-hmm. is, is very much a privilege, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so if you're just trying to make ends meet and you're just trying to put food on the table and survive one way or the other, then the notion that you should also worry about all these other things about your food, <laughs> it, it seems kind of preposterous to me, you know? Yeah. So, so I'm, I, I, I hesitate to, um, place any kind of judgment in a broad sense on, you know, anyone who, you know, thinks in such simplistic ways or doesn't give a damn, you know, and there are lots of folks who absolutely have the wherewithal and the time and space to think about these things and just never do. (laughs) Um, And I find the disconnects, you know, in, in cases like that, I find the the deep disconnect uh, 
kind of troubling, um, not just around food for that matter. I mean, and this is something that also, you know, coming out of um, just really basic, I'm, not, I'm by no means like a, a deep student of mindfulness or Buddhism or anything, but, but just a, a light reading of the, you know, the work of, of Thich Nhat Hanh and, and others, the notion of looking deeply at something, at a material, whether it's a food or a piece of paper or anything else, and understanding and imagining where it came from and all of the, you know, the, the natural systems that came out of the, the, the people that were involved in bringing that to you as a piece of food or a piece of paper, uh, not doing that, not having any sense of connection is, I think is, is, is troubling. There's a, <clears throat> this is a great quote from Aldo Leopold um, who wrote in, in one of the essays that's in the Sam County Almanac, he, he, he wrote, there are two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. One is the danger of supposing breakfast comes from the grocery and the other that heat comes from the furnace. And having also worked as a, as a forester logger in order to reconcile my, you know, deeply embedded relationship with, with the wood that constructs my home and heats my home and so forth. Um, I realized some years later that I'd spent years trying to like wrestle with those two spiritual dangers, um, both wood and also food, right? You know, heat, heat and food, um, two sort of prime energy sources. And I think there is a danger there, uh, you know, whether you want to call it a spiritual danger or, or frame it in some other way uh, of just not thinking about it. And more troubling to me, honestly, is people who willfully don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, I've had this conversation with people. It's like, oh yeah, I don't, I want to eat this hamburger or whatever it is. And I just don't want to think about where it came from, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I find that troubling when it's, when it's that, when it's that bald yeah. faced. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, Albert Borgman, uh, the philosopher who lives out, works out in Montana, um, has written about the importance of focal things and focal practices in our lives mm-hmm. uh, versus like the divisification of things where things just become so convenient, but also alienating and essentially magic, right? Like how does your air conditioner work? How does your furnace work? I don't know. I push a button and then it's the temperature that it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't sit and stare of an evening at your thermostat Mm -hmm. and, you know, drinking a glass of wine and just, you know, maybe talking to your family the way you would around a fire. So what does it do to you to mindlessly eat? I mean, Mm -hmm. in addition to all the other problems Americans have for mindless overeating. Mm -hmm. When I teach ethics, um, the real challenge for my students is they want to fall in one of two directions. They either want to say, this doesn't matter. None of this matters. You can do whatever you want. Everybody's ethics is relative. Um, so everybody has their own idea of what's good or bad. There's no way to judge between them. Who cares? Right. Which is mm-hmm. essentially saying, I want to stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's, it's easily proven that they don't actually think that it's just a move. So they don't have to think about their ethics class because, you know, you say, okay, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I'm going to start auctioning off grades. If you guys would all write down how much money you're willing to pay me for an A, um, you know, I'm happy to do that. And if that bugs, if that bugs you, your reasoning for why it bugs you. Now we're back into my ethics class again. Um, So that's one direction. And same with food, right? Like, I don't want to think about it. Who cares? Whatever. Everybody can do what they want. Hmm. But the other way of falling is give me the simple answer. 
right? Give me the solution that I can follow where I've checked the box and now I'm done because, which is in a way, another way to say, I don't want to think about this anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just tell me, tell me the checklist I need to go through before I make a choice. Mm -hmm. So you alluded a little bit um, just now to some of the gray areas ethically about um, being vegan. Uh, Mm -hmm. But maybe you could talk about that for our listeners who haven't read your book or haven't looked into this very much because it seems really obvious. Okay. uh, Either I don't care if animals are hurt or I don't think about it, or I think it's not a big deal, or I think they can't feel pain or something like that. Or I say, okay, yeah, they can. It's wrong to feel pain. That's it's wrong to cause pain, I guess, or benefit from the pain of others. So I won't. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, I'm done, right? Clean, uh, clean hands ethic. What, mm-hmm. so, and that was something that you thought too, uh, when you were younger. Mm-hmm. So what started mm-hmm. to complicate that picture for you? I was reading a, a book by, Richard Nelson, who's a marvelous advocate for for natural places and an anthropologist who, who grew up in the Midwest and ended up living up in Alaska. And his, his book called Heart and Blood, Living with Deer in America, is a wide-ranging book about biology and cultural history and so forth, but, are, but human relationships with, with multiple species of deer on the North American continent. And I was really startled to read about the high number of, of deer because we have so many deer now. We didn't a century ago, but we have so many deer now. The high number of deer that are killed to protect a given crop and pretty much any crop. I mean, he documents you know, almost any crop that is grown in North America somewhere, you know, Someone's killing deer to, to, to minimize the damage. Um, and that just brought me up short. <laughs> Is it, that was not in my worldview of what the production of all of the fruits and vegetables and grains and legumes and so forth that I was consuming meant, you know, that, that animals are being killed for it. So that, that was sort of the first chink in the armor, if you will, of that, uh, of that fairly simple black and white thinking that I had been in when I realized that it wasn't just, you know, somewhere thousands of miles away, it wasn't just these big industrial farms when it came home to, oh, it's just a few miles down the road at the little organic farm. Um, and it's not just deer, it's also, you know, woodchucks and, you know, rodents getting chopped up in grain combines and ground nesting birds being disturbed and, and killed and it's also just the habitat, you know, like agricultural fields don't just pop out of the ground, right? right. It's prairie or it's forest and that's all wildlife habitat. And then it gets quote unquote converted to, to agricultural use. And so there's this massive scale of, of, of impact of all of that, you know, just sort of, I started to pay attention to different layers of relationship between land and agriculture and animals and my notion of you know the clean hands ethic as you put it um crumbled pretty quick at that point (laughs) yeah i i mean like the simplistic version would be that uh we can be separated from nature Mm -hmm. i mean both both things are kind of this right i'm separated from nature so i don't care what happens to pigs or i'm separated from nature so i don't have to cause the pain of other things or i don't have to eat anything else (laughs) <laughs> in order to 
sustain myself. And I guess in some secret way, I mean, who knows, it might be driven by the idea that, um, and therefore I'm, I'm kind of, if I'm truly separated from nature, then maybe I'm never going to die. Right. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I'm not mm-hmm. going to worm food if I, don't, if I promise not to eat any animals mm-hmm. um, or if I promise not to care about whether environments are being destroyed or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's, uh, I mean, you talk about Val Plumwood uh, in her essay on being prey where she was, mm-hmm. she writes in favor of, the salutary effects of being preyed upon. And uh, as I, I've brought this up before in other podcasts, she more than anyone else puts her money where her mouth is with that because she was almost eaten by a, an, a crocodile, I believe mm-hmm, um, in mm-hmm. Australia. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that there's that separation that seems impossible in the same way that, you know, that same sort of thinking through things. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, another thing that you then talk about, so, okay, you're eating yogurt and eggs, right? So you're moving back into being vegetarian rather than vegan. Um, you talk a lot about fishing in the book. Um, and you also talk about Cape Cod, which is for me, uh, personally, uh, resonant, you know, my, uh, father lives, uh, in Massachusetts and they had a house on the Cape the whole time I was growing up. Um, and I, I well remember him taking me fishing, um, at a local pond, uh, which, so he would catch the fish and he put them into a bucket. And I was convinced that we were catching pets. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I was telling him all about, you know, these rainbow trout and what, why they were called that and what they looked at. And, and then I named the ones that were swimming around in the bucket, which uh, free parenting tip to anyone listening to this. If your child names the things that the fish that you just caught, he might not know what's going on. He might, <laughs> you might have to sit him down and talk to him about this. But my dad was, you know, very happy for me to name it and say, yes, that's interesting. I had I didn't know that. Oh, tell me more about these fish, um, you know reinforcing the know-it-all nature that I now have deeply ingrained into me. It's probably bad parenting too. And then brought them home and hit them with a hammer, mm-hmm. which I still remember that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I ran outside, started crying, um, and uh, you know, just couldn't, sort of couldn't process it and refused to eat them. Um, you uh, went fishing quite a lot as a child um, and were probably introduced to it a little more <laughs> naturally, a little slower than that, a little less shockingly. And you then came back to fishing um, sort of as another step once you were moving away from a vegan diet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I fished extensively as a kid. And when I started to eat animal foods again and and then started to move beyond uh, you know, yogurt and and eggs, for example, to having some some local poultry and and some wild caught fish, I thought, well, I know how to do that. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been down that road. I've, I've fished. And as with harvesting my own firewood and understanding where it came from, I thought, well, I could go back to fishing and actually have that direct experience instead of farming out, so to speak, you know, farming out all of the, the killing um, and the catching to, to somebody else indirectly by going to the grocery store, you know, I could re-engage there. I could take a step back into that world of, of being, being the predator, you know, who caught that particular fat fish that I then ate rather than having someone else do it for me and that I, you know, they do it by proxy and I pay them, you know? Um, right. so it was, yeah, it, it was strange after, you know, let's see, you know, the last time I'd fished, I was 20 and, you know, it was a decade plus later that I, I picked it back up and, and started to 
look at the water differently and and think about oh i could actually go to that pond that lake that stretch of river and i might actually come home with with food uh, and i might actually intentionally and consciously kill the creature the the being that i'm about to i'm about to eat yeah and i think um you know it's it, that much more sort of immediate uh, wrestling with that, I think pe- bothers people a little bit less when it's fish, much like mm-hmm. um, if you tell people, well, organic farms and gardens have to kill insects that are eating mm-hmm. leaves of mm-hmm. zucchini or tomatoes or whatever, people are like, well, that's unfortunate, but I mean, ultimately, bugs are gross. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and fish are kind of foreign, too. But mm-hmm. you then took the next step of shooting Bambi's mom. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, going after charismatic, cute, uh, mammals. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you're talking about white-tailed deer overpopulation mm-hmm. and the huge ecological damage they do, not just to farmers' crops, but forests as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But even so, I think that for a lot of people, um, people who don't eat animals in particular, uh, the idea of hunting is particularly repugnant, even if mm-hmm. maybe intellectually, uh, a you know, if you had to choose, would you rather be a deer that lived its whole life in the forest and then was shot out of the blue, ideally by surprise, um, or an animal that grew up in a CAFO mm-hmm. uh, and was killed in an industrial process? You pr- you know, it's pretty clear which one you choose. Um, so you should be more upset by people eating pigs and cows than by people eating deer, perhaps. But I feel like there's there's more of like a visceral kind of that's that seems wrong. That seems bad or gross. Um reaction among people that don't eat animals to the act of hunting, you know, like mm-hmm. you're gratuitously choosing to kill something right now. Um, mm-hmm. So what was that experience like for you? Did you still have that kind of ambivalence uh, between like both narratives running in your head or had you really moved over to it by then? There's a lot there. Um, <laughs> sure. There's a it's lot an easy, there. It's an easy question. <laughs> it's an easy question. Yeah. It's softball. Um, <clears throat> you're absolutely right that the experience of fishing and and killing a fish is quite different from from hunting and and killing a mammal um and that i think as i mentioned in the book that's pretty well documented cross-culturally it's not you know not a cultural universal necessarily but pretty well documented that fish do get often categorized more like plants and insects, you know, than, than like mammals, they're, they're less like us. And we tend to have less empathy and immediate um, sense of connection to, to them. So the shift to, to hunting birds, by the way, are sort of ambiguous. Birds are kind of sure. in the middle between <laughs> mammals and, and they're warm blooded, but they aren't mammals. And, um, right. Are, are fish are fish a mammal or a, are, are birds a mammal or a fish is an odd question, but you can, you can kind of see where right. it's coming from in terms of emotional reaction. Right. But they're, they're sort of somewhere in the middle. Uh, but but going to mammals and particularly, I mean, particularly large mammals for a lot of us, you know, a, a mammal that is essentially the same size as we are um, <clears throat> as a deer is, is likely to be. Um, that is is really a a shift and it was a difficult one for me 
um, to contemplate, you know, did I really want to do that? Um, the idea of it, you know, thinking about being able to take direct responsibility for a more significant portion of, of the animal food I was, I was eating. And at that point we, we weren't eating red meat, you know, we weren't eating beef or anything um, like that, but there was an appeal to it on the one hand. Um, but the idea of actually taking the life of a deer was not appealing. <laughs> uh, I, I was conflicted about that. And that's just the act of it. As, as you sort of alluded to, there's also all kinds of ideas about it, all kinds of cultural ideas and narratives about hunting in particular um, that are highly variable across cultures um, and deeply conflicted, as I dig into a little bit in the, in the book, deeply conflicted in European-American history, um, the, the, the place that hunting has occupied in our collective imagination culturally um, has changed radically and gone from, you know, very negative to positive at certain times and bifurcated and, and conflicted depends on who's doing the hunting and for what reasons. And, you know, it's just, it's really complicated. Yeah. And so I was also wrestling with all of that, you know, not just the idea of, of taking a life, but also self-identifying as a hunter. You know, becoming sure. a hunter uh, was a bizarre and, and quite uncomfortable notion. One of the things I liked about your book very much is that in addition to pointing out that there are gray areas and oversimplifications uh, about agriculture, mm-hmm. a common move then is to say, but the good thing about hunting is they're natural allies of people who care about the environment because they care about protecting habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also, while not rejecting that, kind of show that that's a complicated picture as well. So hunters care about habitat and animals being able to live, but very specifically targeted animals. They care about the ones that they're going to hunt and they care about the habitat to the extent that it does that. And the idea that that will naturally support all of the animals that might live in that habitat or a rich ecosystem um, it isn't always true, right? And if, if it's true, it's uh, sort of contingent. So it's kind of um, fragile. So, for example, if you're a hunter, you want to make sure there are a lot of deer, right? So even if you say, well, there's a lot, you know, there's too many deer in the United States, so we need to cull that population one way or another. And maybe then you say, so then we, and we have to kill them, so why not let hunters do it? That's true, but hunters' uh, interests are for there to still be deer next year for them to hunt again, um, and quite a lot of them. So it's not necessarily that all hunters are, you know, sort of high-minded preservationists, you know, uh, idealistic images of Teddy Roosevelt or something, but it's also not the case that they are uh, just gun-toting lunatics, as some people, you know, that's sort of the, the other side of that in the culture war might think. Yeah, I mean, there's many subgroups among hunters, and it, it, is, it is true that if you're focused on certain species, that they conserving certain species and habitat for certain species, that they can very much act as essentially an umbrella species. So that if you preserve good habitat for black bear, 
um, or for Bobcat, you know, you're also preserving and protecting and conserving really good habitat for a whole lot of other species. So there is, you know, there is certainly truth in that. Um, and the work that, you know, a lot of organizations do to say to protect large swaths of habitat for elk benefit lots of other species and so forth. Yeah. Um, and people hunt for a wide variety of reasons. Often the same individual person hunts for a wide variety of reasons, sort of a, sure. um, just as people who garden or, or, or have any other activity that they, they engage in. It's partly the food. It's partly, you know, the enjoyment of being outdoors. It's, you know, it's partly a whole lot of, whole lot of things. And there's quite a bit of variation among, you know, <clears throat> there's quite a bit of variation among individuals as well. So it's really challenging when you've got a, a relatively small minority of the population. Um, and so in, you know, in the case of, you know, hunting in the United States, you're talking about, you know, 5%, give or take, maybe, maybe it's a f little higher than that, who, who hunt regularly. Um, a small minority, it's really easy for stereotypes <laughs> um, to, to develop. Um, and it's also really easy for that minority to look for narratives and, and justifications, especially when they start to feel that they are besieged, you know, by, by the culture and, and, and being critiqued and being pressured to, to sort of wink out of existence, if you will, if that's yeah. their perception, it, it's easy for the argument, oh, well, we have to control deer, for example, to come to the fore. Um, and while that is factually true for ecological and agricultural reasons, um, as you say, most hunters don't want to drastically reduce the number of deer either <laughs> uh, if right. they're deer hunters. Uh, so there is a, there is a tension there. Lots of hunters, as I've gotten to know them, I, I, I knew a couple of hunters and my uncle who ended up being a real key mentor for me, uh, I knew, and I knew a few others. I just didn't know many hunters as I've gotten to, to know more and more hunters. I've, you know, just come to appreciate the sheer diversity of attitudes and beliefs and feelings about the natural world and about the species they hunt in particular and how much they respect the individual and how much they think about the population. And some of these folks are incredibly committed and passionate conservationists who really do think systemically about ecosystems. Um, and some don't, you know, that's not what their focus is that, you know, uh, hunting and being outdoors is a, something they do on occasion and, but they aren't thinking about the, the larger systems a whole lot. Uh, so yeah, it's a complex landscape. It's a complex landscape. Sure. And, and as we said earlier about, um, you know, people often become vegan because of some particular reaction and then they find other reasons on top of it. So if they did it for health reasons, then they start to think about morals or they did it for the moral reason, then mm -hmm. they start to say that their health benefits or environmental mm -hmm. benefits. Mm -hmm. Likewise, you know, you might just hunt because you, your dad took you hunting when you were a kid. But then when somebody says an argument in favor of hunting, you're just like, oh, I'll tuck that one in my back pocket because it supports the thing that I'm already doing or uh, that I already agree with. Yeah, um, you may have you may have a whole bunch of reasons that you that are truly authentic to why you do it. Some of which you're conscious of, and some of which you're not conscious of. 
and then also those other sort of narratives and justifications that you might pick up elsewhere and become part yeah. of be, become part of the story you tell. Yeah, a, um, a, a colleague of mine, um, back when I was a graduate student at Michigan State, um, he works with the Isle Royale Wolf Moose Project, which oh, is yeah, a yeah, yeah, yeah. long-term ecological research, and which is so cool to be able to do these kinds of long-term ecological studies. Mm-hmm. But what he was looking at as a philosopher was um, the question at the time was the wolf population on that island is collapsing yep. due in part to um, a disease that was probably introduced by somebody who like has a grandfathered in cabin on that island uh, going hunting probably with a dog who brought a, um, a disease that wolves are susceptible to uh, and climate change from humans, meaning that the ice, a solid ice uh, doesn't form between the island and Canada anymore mm-hmm. so that it's hard for wolves to cross over. And they get a so genetically like, isolated population yeah. and that challenges right. them. So, yeah. so there's mm-hmm. just collapse, right? So they're having mm-hmm. like hip dysplasia and other kinds of things that happen from right. genetic isolation and then yep. a disease on top of it. And so the question was, well, look, in Wisconsin, when they catch wolves and in some parts of Canada, they have to take them far away. Like that's part of the rule. Um, so, or destroy them. And so they could take a female wolf to Isle Royale and drop it off. It would definitely be accepted um, the way pack structures work as a female, especially since there were very few females there at the time, they thought maybe there were zero, but then it turns out there was like one, but they would definitely have accepted her into the pack. Um, and it would genetically rescue this population. Should we do that? Mm-hmm. And, uh, the Isle Royale Wolf Moose Project set up a conversation for people to talk about, should we do that? Mm-hmm. And what he, he was hoping to find, or what he thought he might find was that people have certain sorts of arguments when they think certain sorts of ways. So, you know, maybe they would make some sort of Kantian deontological argument accidentally if they if they support, you know, our duty to these wolves. Or maybe they would make a utilitarian argument if they thought we shouldn't do this or we should do this, that he thought there'd be some kind of lineup. But what he found was people have an, a gut reaction to that question. Mm-hmm. Is, it turning, is it turning it into a zoo? Because currently these are wild animals. Is this now like a, a park that we're tending or something and we're choosing to have wolves be here? Or is it that we owe this thing or we that we ought to do it because the wolf population is collapsing basically. So you have a gut reaction to it and then you just grab any argument you can think of and you switch between, you switch between. For them sure. Sure. It's, it's back to the elephant and the rider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So speaking about those kinds of thoughts, what would you say to maybe like a slightly more nuanced position on vegetarianism, which says, well, look, we can't, there are gray areas. We can't have a perfect non-suffering kind of diet, but it's good to minimize suffering Uh, in anything that we interact with. And so uh, eating plants that might have accidentally through, you know, the doctrine of double effect (laughs) to sound very Catholic for Mm -hmm. a second, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, resulted in the death of animals is different than something that definitely for sure must have because it was intended to cause the death of animals and eating a dead animal. Um, And then for deer, you know, there's talk um, uh, among people who really want to not kill animals of saying something like, well, you can um, cause deer to be sterile or you can cause them to, you know, either the male or the female to not breed. Uh, There's various ways Mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you can even catch them and fix them, you know, like we do with Mm -hmm. cats. Um, Or you can do it chemically with, you know, uh, estrogen supplements and things like that and food that you leave out for them. So there'll Mm -hmm. be ways to manage the population without killing anyone. Um, What is, what is your response? Like, why isn't that where you went from being vegetarian and vegan? Um, but rather to this sort of like more, I don't know, immediate or traditional kind of way of interacting mm-hmm. with animals. Yeah. Um, 
lots of different paths to go here. Um, so the some of I don't in spirit or in principle have any objection to those 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 arguments or those lines of of thinking at all. Um, there are some practical, you know, like the sort of you know <clears throat> deer contraception. There are some practical. <laughs> problems that it's been tried and it's, it's challenging to actually make that happen. Um, but in terms of why I move in this direction, I, you know, if I'm really honest about it, it's hard to tease apart and know exactly. Um, because as you, as we say, you know, as we've acknowledged, we have these, these almost instinctive, um, responses and decisions that we make. And then we, then we make up a story about it <laughs> right. um, and make up, we find our justifications for it. Uh, I would say that at some point, and I have to look back into my own book to remember how I sort of articulated this and where I, where I landed on it. At some point it started to feel like I had been trying to escape, you know, escape having an impact, uh, escape the inevitability of, of having a footprint. Um, and while I agree with the, the broad idea of, you know, we ought to minimize suffering, um, the, notion of sticking with a vegetarian diet, even if I, that had been, or a vegan diet, if, if that had felt sustainable sure. for me, um, or even going to a vegetarian diet, you know, the vegan diet, there's all these, these other effects um, to habitat and animals, for example, and, 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 and those, you know, ecosystems and ha habitat um, with, a vegetarian diet, you know, you're, you're eating, say yogurt, eating dairy, and there's all this, uh, there's a whole unseen system <laughs> that is involved there and, and lots of mortality, <laughs> lots sure. of a very intentional killing. You're just not the one eating the beef, <laughs> but, but the beef is being produced as part of that yog yogurt system, if you will. Um, but the idea of keeping that at arm's length, um, I guess I started to feel like, A, what is the, what is the purpose for me of keeping that at arm's length? And is there actually something that I need to face and encounter and learn from going into this really directly and, and having a really direct encounter, like with fishing, rather than buying fish at the store, having the direct encounter with, I'm catching and eating this fish. Um, and, and similarly, in a more intense way with, with hunting, is there something that I need to encounter and face and learn uh, by going down that path? And I yeah. think that's, that's what, I, my sense is that that is 
essentially the kind of quest um, that I was embarking on as I took up hunting is there is something here that I need to, or maybe a whole set of things, but things to learn about myself, about the world. Um, and this is, this is a, a very direct, if complicated path to get there. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. Um, you know, you also talk about in your book, William Cronin and his uh, intentionally polemical uh, mm -hmm. papers about the concept of wilderness mm -hmm. um, as a kind of social construct of this mm -hmm. thing where there, where there are no people, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which is a bummer because it means you're never there. It's, it's always retreating one step in front of you when you go off into the wilderness because mm -hmm. you've ruined it by your presence. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, from an environmental justice perspective, because I do work in that as well as in mm -hmm. food, mm -hmm. um, it's a bummer because it means you're writing off areas as ruined. Uh, and But, you know, people still have to live in these ruined areas. And presumably there's a better and a worse way to live in ruined or despoiled <laughs> cities. Just mm -hmm. because people are there doesn't mean you don't want to think about green spaces or opportunities to be outside and connect with nature, to see animals other than humans, to see things that we didn't create, um, you know, and be able to reckon with the fact that not everything is built for human use. You know, not everything is mm -hmm. human sized and shaped. Um, even if you live in Detroit, you know, <laughs> where I did my um, PhD research. Mm -hmm. uh, and also one of my advisors, Paul Thompson, who from a very early time, he, he along with people like Wendell Berry, uh, talked about farms as ecosystems, that those also aren't mm -hmm. ruined. You know, that there's mm -hmm. that kind of desire to separate ourselves off can be a real loss. And it makes us miss some really important things about uh, who we are as a society. Definitely. And I think that is resonant with where I was going in asking the question of myself, you know, essentially, have I been trying to escape from the world, from reality, from my relationship with nature? And what's the point of trying to escape? If what I deeply believe is that humans are part of nature and there are better and worse ways, you know, to live in the world and to, to inhabit the natural world. Um, but we aren't separate from it. We aren't, we aren't some alien species. <laughs> yeah. um, and the notion that good nature is the untouched, um, the untouched wilderness is, is deeply troubling. That idea itself, this sort of casting of, of the, you know, human presence and human touch as the destroyer, you know, it's that, that is a, we've done a lot of destructive things and continue sure. to do a lot of destructive things, but that narrative and that belief in a way reinforces it and, and sort of cuts us off from the possibility of feeling really connected and integrated in the natural world and having that be a healthy thing. <laughs> for us and and for the world we inhabit. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So um, maybe that transitions us into uh, the recipe that you submitted uh, to share with everybody. So just as a little bit of background, um, I teach a philosophy of food class and I have my students uh, share food with each other that's mm -hmm. meaningful to them or significant to them in some ways. Um, and we've had some really great uh, conversations about that, and then we eat together. Uh, huh. Since since the lockdown has shifted all my classes <laughs> online, yeah. um, I had to think about how to do that. 
and so I had students uh, just share things virtually, make videos, and those have been wildly successful. I'm going to keep doing that even when we go back face to face, and um, I'm finding a way to uh, share those videos and the stories that students have mm-hmm. um, with everybody, with with their permission, of course. So uh, for listeners, watch this space, and uh, I'll let you know soon about how to do that. Um, you know, because a lot of my students down here in the valley, um, a lot of them hunt, a lot of them fish. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, either they or their parents or grandparents were farm laborers, um, you know, working a triangle of, you know, south from Mexico up to maybe Michigan at the right time of year over west to maybe California or Washington and then mm-hmm. back down here again, um, just to kind of always be working. Um, and so their relationships with food is quite complex. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had presentations from people who say they hate blueberries because they had to pick them when they were kids. Yeah. And it was this backbreaking labor. You'd be happy when pesticides would come on you because it felt like a nice mist. And mm-hmm. then in a grocery store to see this sort of like uh, curated display of it looking particularly, you know, like these happy farmers picking in this and these like bushel baskets and everything <laughs> just right, fills right. her with rage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, compared to people who talk a lot about, um, you know, having secret fishing and hunting spots down here in the valley that they don't tell people about, they're not even really allowed to go there, you know, all these kinds of shared experiences around food. Mm -hmm. Um, So as much as I would like you to go to everybody's houses listening to this podcast and eat with them, um, (laughs) until that, you know, I'll I'll, I'll send you a list. But until then, um, I thought maybe you could do the same thing as our students and submit um, some food that was meaningful to you. So what recipe have you brought for us today? Yeah, um, I brought uh, a recipe for a uh, curried uh, venison cottage pie, uh, which I uh, <clears throat> sort of concocted or, or, or adapted from a from an existing recipe uh, in the past couple of years, um, and really really enjoy, especially in the winter. I mean, this is interesting because uh, it's not the first uh, meat based recipe that we've had, although. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's just who I happen to know or my friends, but a weirdly number of large number of people on this podcast have uh, brought vegetarian or vegan recipes, probably just to be nice to me. Um, sure. <laughs> but uh, this is one. For, I was not actually. so considerate, obviously. No, don't listen. I don't want that. That's not the point. The point is for it to be personally significant, not significant to me. Uh, the, uh, a game based dish, uh, I think, is really interesting. Um, so, yeah, I would encourage my uh, listeners to, if you have access to venison, to give it a try. Um, I'm sure it could be made so, with, I mean, like I, I mentioned, even the recipe, it probably could, you could make a vegetarian version and I'm sure, sure. that a, 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 a version with, with, uh, poultry or beef or something would be, would be great as well. I've just, <laughs> I've just made it with, uh, with venison and yeah, I think that's great with our conversation. Of course, we haven't talked about, you know, the actual experience of taking the life of a deer and yeah, what was that? What was that like? And not just that, but then converting it from well, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's the act of killing the animal, and then you have mm-hmm. the dead animal in front of you, and then there's that mm-hmm. second kind of act of turning it into something mm-hmm. that doesn't look like an animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it took me several years, as as you know from reading the book, it took me several years to be successful in in hunting and actually actually take a deer, um, and it was. <clears throat> It was intense, really, really intense experience. I was, when I finally, it was the beginning of early in my fourth fall of, of, of hunting, when I, when I shot and killed a deer, I was in 
a real state of shock, sort of emotional and maybe spiritual shock (laughs) of that moment. Um, And as that sort of numbness or shock started to wear off over the course of the next, you know, hours and, and day or, or so underneath it, there was, there was a lot of grief, I think for me, and everyone has a different response uh, to this kind of experience. But for me, there was just a lot of grief underneath that. Um, And I think it was partly the grief of that particular um, act, that particular moment, that particular death, this particular animal that I had, that I had killed. And I think it was also a to some extent, sort of a deeper, more, almost more existential grief. Like this is, like, this is how nature is, (laughs) like, like predation and life and death and mortality. And there's just a very, you know, literally visceral encounter with that, um, which was shocking and, and left me feeling a lot of grief. The, the next step, as you say, of, of transforming that animal, of butchering that animal and turning that animal into something that looks like food that's, you know, packages in a freezer. Um, that I didn't anticipate how important and powerful that was going to be. I'd always intended to do it. I didn't want to go from farming out the entire process, um, to farming out part of the process. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to go through the whole process. And I'd, I'd helped my uncle once with, with a deer that he had, that he had shot. Um, but I'd never had that happen myself. I never, never butchered a deer that I, I had taken. And that process, I think, was the first really tangible experience I had of, of integrating this experience, integrating the, the taking of this life, um, it felt, this will sound very weird, but it, it felt very familiar, both, both really unfamiliar because I'd never, I'd only helped my uncle do it once, sure. but there was a, <clears throat> but there was a, a deep sense of familiarity and sort of the rhythmic movement of knife and bone and just going through that, it was almost like a ceremony. It was almost ritual in a way. And I think psychologically for me at a, at the literal level of psyche, like the soul, you know, it had an integrative effect much as a good ritual um, can have. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just helped me come to terms with it. And it was after, cause when I first took that deer's life, I thought as the grief sort of broke through the shock, I was like, I'm not sure I ever want to do that again. Like I just put all this effort in over all these years. And like you say, now I've got a dead animal. (laughs) Like, so what? Like, is that the purpose? Like that's, that's the end game here. Um, But it was in the process of over the course of, you know, uh, a couple of days completing that, that butchering process that it, that I started to integrate it and started to feel like, yeah, I, could and probably will go through this again. Maybe the, the next step in that too of 
of then consuming that animal, when you ate it, did that feel effectively different than say if you had bought deer or if your uncle had gift had gifted you some from something he had killed? Like, you know, was it all a syncretic experience or was it mm. or had it mm-hmm. like just transformed it to food? When I was contemplating taking up hunting, I had received some some wild meat. In that case, I think it was moose from from a hunter that I knew and had cooked that. And that was very bizarre because I had only been eating, you know, yogurt and um, eggs and some some poultry and fish. So to eat red meat and to imagine the the individual animal, the specific animal, it, it was a very strange experience because I'd already had some uh, of that experience. There wasn't as much shock to eating red meat itself, but it was much more specific because I wasn't just imagining the individual animal. I knew exactly which individual right. animal, you know, <laughs> it wasn't just an imagination of some moose somewhere. It was that deer in that place. And that's one of the powerful things for me about, about hunting and about having venison in the freezer and eating that venison is that like a, you know, a tree that you cut and harvested and are now using to build your house or to, for firewood, or like something that you grew in the garden, there's, there's no distance, right? It's so immediate. And so you can't pick up that piece of food and and ingest it without being aware of exactly where it came from, exactly what you know the the cost of life was, or, or which which life was was taken. Um, yeah, it's it, it continues to have that sort of as I say integrative quality to it. Yeah. Cooking uh, that moose steak, uh, you know, it. if you haven't done anything like that in years, it mm-hmm. really, and I think this is one reason why thinking about food is so interesting and also powerful versus say, I don't know, clothing, which is another mm-hmm. thing we interact with every day, mm-hmm. um, which also has a bunch of ethical issues. <laughs> you can think mm-hmm. about that too. But food, um, you know, it's, it's as, as you were saying earlier, it's literally visceral, right? It's literally something you're taking into you. You're incorporating mm-hmm. it into yourself. It assaults your nose and your taste, you know, your tongue, <laughs> it makes you notice that it's there, at least if it's something different, if it's something new, because yep. our bodies are really trained to notice new food to see if it's good, right? <laughs> and so then, you, so you're forced to ask that question, is this good, uh, which, you know, has a lot of valences, is it spoiled, but also is it moral, but also is it <laughs> nice? Is it aesthetically pleasing? Is it beautiful? Is it, you know, all these kinds of questions. Um, <laughs> but then for that, you know, when you've actually seen that animal, you mentioned Carol Adams and her work on the absent referent. And I will say, mm-hmm. I mean, Carol is uh, a vegan. So right. her solution is, you know, she, she thinks it's it's a wrong to harm animals and to think of them in, as something that can be eaten. Mm-hmm. But I think a separate observation is this idea that when we're eating just a nameless piece of meat in some sauce that we're not really thinking about, mm-hmm. um, there is this you know, this, this absent referent, this idea that the animal is gone. It's been erased uh, mm-hmm. as you're eating it. Mm-hmm. And um, anyone who's vegetarian or vegan will know what <laughs> what I mean by this, because if you are eating in mixed company and you 
ask the waiter a polite question about whether something's vegan, you'll find that people respond very badly to having that absent referent brought up in front of them to being, you know, they'll, they'll get defensive or they'll, you know, make a joke about it or they'll tease you or, you know, depending on their personality, but there's a reaction to you reminding them of this thing that they're doing. Um, and I think that that is a, that that kind of absence, that alienation from what you're doing is a separate harm, whatever your feelings are about eating animals or not eating animals. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so it's, you know, it's, it's the very present referent, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> when, when you're, you're taking a package of venison out of the freezer and, and you killed that deer and you know where that happened and you, but you know, butchered that deer, it, it's very present. Um, and there's no, no separation whatsoever. Um, and earlier, you, you mentioned the, the the language that we use, you know, cow versus beef, and you know, certainly the has become the common usage. Um, looking back, sort of in the history of of the words, we often find that well, here's the sort of the English, and this other one is actually French, and it was used by different populations in different ways. Um, but we do use it that way now to separate from in, in modern English, we use it to separate the animal and the, the product, if you will, the meat. Um, and, but for me, when I say venison, I'm not saying not deer <laughs> right. at all. <laughs> That's just the word that I tend to use. Uh, but I, I'm very clearly aware that it's deer and, and which deer. <laughs> right. Well, if you weren't aware of that, you wouldn't have been able to catch it in the first place. This is what I mean about that kind of <laughs> right. that kind of connection. I mean, you know, while certainly hunting can be, and and, and you go into, I mean, whole other conversation, which I'll, I'll bring you back on and talk to you about sometime, about the difference between sport hunting and subsistence hunting and the attitudes that historically sport hunters have had, the sort of class-based attitudes towards uh, people shooting for the pot. Um, but, you know, there is a, a level of familiarity and I don't know if sympathy is the right word, but being able to put yourself in the shoes of the animal that you are uh, hunting, if you want to be an effective hunter, that mm-hmm. forces you to have some, at least some kind of connection to it beyond just looking at a, a picture of a deer. Yeah, for sure. And resonant with that is the the fact that, you know, people who live closest to the land, whether that means closest to a particular species of animal or closest to the farmland or the the timberland, people who live closest to it um, know the most about it, right? And are often the most insightful about it, whether that's individuals or cultures um, that are that are grounded in a particular uh, set of species and a particular landscape. Um, and, you know, there, there are a whole set of complex issues around different cultural attitudes toward practices like hunting. And the different assumptions that we make culturally, you know, in Western European, European American culture, we tend to say, well, if if an animal can suffer and experience uh, not only pain, but maybe even has uh, emotional and recognizable sort of social relations, um, emotional capacities and recognizable social relations, well, then obviously we shouldn't kill or eat them. Um, And that's a that's a particular cultural logic, right, that that exists there. But if you pay attention, you know, and listen 
deeply to any of a variety of, of traditional uh, indigenous hunting cultures is a very different logic <laughs> um, and a very different understanding, a deep understanding of, of animals and the fact that, of course, they have, you know, they can suffer. Of course, there's, you know, sort of social emotional capacities there. They're often referred to as people, you know, in a lot of traditional hunting cultures, you know, the deer people, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. And yet they also very much um, hunt and, and consume those animals. Um, there's a great film that I was introduced to a few years ago um, called Diet of Souls that is put together by a, a guy who grew up in the Arctic. And the, the premise in that case is that, you know, the, the indigenous peoples of, of that part of the world you know, there, there is just no plant matter to eat, essentially, <laughs> in the Arctic. You know, yeah. a- animals are it. Um, and many of them are understood in, in those cultural contexts to be, you know, the equals or superiors of humans in, in spiritual terms. They, they are our, our teachers and guides and, and not in any way that we look down upon them, as you might assume in, in sort of a Western European cultural legacy of, you know, well, they're beneath us, they're just beasts, you know, Um, not at all. It's just, it's quite, quite the opposite. And yet your entire diet consists of these equals and superiors and the the sort of moral and spiritual uh, landscape of that is just so entirely different from, (laughs) from what those of us who've inherited a uh, essentially European and Euro-American cultural legacy are, uh, are situated within. It's just totally different. Yeah. No, I think that there's, you know, sort of the traditional uh, ethical calculus that most of us grew up in in our backgrounds is that there's a, a bright line between things that fully count 100% morally mm-hmm. and things that don't count at all. <clears throat> and the fight has been over centuries to bring more people into the circle of who counts morally, right? Mm-hmm. Even if they're mm-hmm. of a different race mm-hmm. or actually, even before that, even if you don't know them, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Even if they're a stranger mm-hmm. and then even if they look very different from you mm-hmm. and then even if they're women, God forbid, mm-hmm. right? That they, turns out they're actually people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and then for some uh, vegans, vegetarians, they want to say, well, look, actually these, uh, these other animals also share the relevant features that I think mm-hmm. is, are what defines that line. And then, you know, the fight mm-hmm. is what defines that line, of course, but if you agree that these, that it has to do with, if they can recognize each other, if they can fear, if they can feel pain, whatever it is, mm-hmm. then you can bring them in this side of the line. But all of those are still presupposing the idea of this hard line between what matters and what doesn't matter. And that everything inside the line, you have to have one kind of relationship of with, and everything outside the line, you can do whatever you want to. Right. Um, and, and if, if it or they matter, then. Right. Yeah. At all. Then, 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 you know, thou shalt not consume. Thou right. shalt not yeah. kill. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. a um, uh, Joey Tuminello is a friend and colleague of mine, and he's done work on uh, the invasivore sort of discourse. Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. how people think that because something isn't native to the area, then no, all all bets are off. <laughs> you can do whatever <laughs> you want. You know, you can hunt the boar from a helicopter. You can set massive fires. You can do anything you want to something as long as it's not from here. But his, mm-hmm. I mean, his contention is just that it's not that it's not that simple that 
trying to say that something doesn't matter at all just because, uh, you know, a few generations ago, this thing wasn't on this island or whatever is a really weird, <laughs> really weird, weird way to think about it. But it's that same logic of like, just show me what's inside or outside that circle that I care about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if we care about everything, I mean, that's because it's, it's an impossibility if you define it such that everything inside the circle, I won't hurt in, or harm or have any sort of negative interactions with or unless I'm a bad person and everything outside the circle, I can exploit however I want. I mean, you, know, you could talk about ways that that connects to colonialism and imperialism and things. But if you want to bring everything into the circle of what matters ethically, then you have to still eat some of the things that are inside the circle. And so you need to rethink what that means. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> right. All of which to say is, I guess, when my dad, uh, when I first told him I was vegetarian when I was like nine years old, and he said, what about the poor plants? You'll eat those. He was actually making a good point. I mean, <laughs> by accident, he was mm-hmm. trying to be facetious, but he was actually making right. an interesting point that's worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if people are interested in uh, reading more of your work, I mean, I'm going to put a link to the book. I really suggest people read it. It was quite good. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. <laughs> Just thank you very much for writing that. But Well, I, like I, I appreciate I appreciate the, uh, the kind words. Glad you did. Yeah. Is there another place people can find your, um, your other writing or your other work if they're interested? Um, yeah. <clears throat> I haven't been doing a lot of, of uh, public-facing writing in the past couple of years, but there's uh, quite a bit thing in the past couple of years. Don't worry about it. Right. <laughs> For sure. Um, but yeah, um, just, just Google my name. You'll find my website. It's just tovarstruli.com. Um, and yeah, there's a link. There's a bunch of, um, blog posts there. There's links to a number of articles. Um, some of which actually connect to, uh, different views of, of wolves among different hunting communities up in the upper Midwest. So was, my ears perked up when you started talking about Isle yeah. Royale. Um, but yes, <clears throat> there are a number of uh, essays and uh, articles that are uh, linked there. Perfect. I'll follow that up. And I'll also put in the show notes, uh, links to some of the, like the sound kind the sand County almanac um, Cronin's work on wilderness, all the, all the different readings that we've been talking about. So I'd suggest people take a look at that. Well, uh, thank you very much for participating uh, Tovar. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ian. That was my conversation with Tovar Saruli. Links are in the show notes, including a link to his book, The Mindful Carnivore, A Vegetarian's Hunt for Sustenance, which, like the book discussed last week, I recommend you check out, especially if, like me, you don't eat meat. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed or some feedback on this episode, drop us a line at ThoughtAboutFood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. Thank you.